0: Welcome to this episode of Safe Home Podcast for struggling teens and their families finding their healing path. I'm Beth Syverson, a mom of an 18-year-old son, Joey, who's been dealing with addiction and mental health issues for several years. I'm walking beside him as he struggles with his recovery while I work on my own personal growth and healing. Today's guest is Darcy Middlestead, an adult adoptee originally from Korea and adopted into a dysfunctional family in Nebraska at age two. Once she came out of the fog, as they say in adoption land, and came to terms with her relinquishment trauma and chaotic adoptive family life, she turned toward her adoption agency. She now helps inform the adoption agency about relinquishment trauma and the struggles that interculturally adopted people have. Hers is a story of resilience and hope that I'm sure everyone, whether or not you were affected by adoption personally, will appreciate hearing. Thank you for coming on Safe Home Podcast, Darcy. Glad to have you. Thank
1: you very much, Beth. It's so good to be with you.
0: You have a pretty intense story to tell, and I want to bring adult adoptees on as often as possible because I think we need to hear your voices, and I want to amplify your voices, but particularly Asian adoptees, international adoptees, intercultural adoptees, because our son is Japanese and I'm white. His adoptive father is Japanese, but Japanese-American and third-generation so pretty assimilated, you know, he doesn't speak a word of Japanese or anything like doesn't use chopsticks, nothing. So I want to be able to hear what that is like for somebody else. So I can be more empathetic for my son because I know that has been problematic for him. So thank you for coming on and sharing your story.
1: Thank you. So I can really start all the way back to from what I remember and from what I remember being told. And most of the stuff I have learned over time with conversation with my adoption agency, okay. as my uh, adoptive parents were not very forthcoming in sharing adoptee uh, information with me oh, okay. growing up. So I was born and was told that I was found abandoned in South Korea and in the city of Uijeongbu, and then placed in an orphanage. I did not come over to the United States until I was about two years old. Mm. I was told that it was because of health issues. I don't know what the real story is. Mm. And as we know, adoption papers and the paperwork and the stories at that time, we're not sure what the truth really is, even though I've been back to Korea twice and there really wasn't that much information in the files.
0: Oh, really? And what decade were we talking about? We Early 70s. 70s. Okay. Yes. And my
1: adoption agency, I will name Dillon International out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, is the agency that helped place me into my adoptive family in Nebraska. It still strikes me wondering how in the world my family, my parents, found Dillon International, which at the beginning, in the early 70s, it was David Livingston Foundation, and then turned into Dillon International. And they just begun in 1972. And I just was back in Tulsa, celebrated their 50th anniversary with them uh, a couple weeks ago, which was a very special event. So as I came into the family of white parents, my dad's German and my mom's, I think, Danish, Swedish um, heritage I am the oldest in my family. I have one brother who is also adopted from Korea. We are not blood related. And I have two sisters who are domestically adopted from Nebraska mm. that are mixed race. Okay. I was raised in Nebraska on a farm with my siblings, my brother and my two sisters. I really did not know what was normal and abnormal until my junior high years of schooling and especially into high school. And then really learned a lot about it uh, throughout college years. Okay. Growing up, to be really honest, I don't remember a lot. And I think part of that is repressed memory from all the trauma.
0: Yes. Oh, gosh.
1: That sounds terrible. So some of the, yeah, some of the stories that I do remember are very not good. And there's a few good ones, but not very many. Mm. I wish I had more stories. But I know, and through lots of therapy, have been able to unpack a little bit, but it's still too painful to talk about some things. Oh, wow.
0: Okay. So So was there addiction involved or abuse? There was abuse. There was
1: physical abuse and a lot of emotional abuse, mental abuse. Okay. A lot of name calling, yelling in our family, a lot of hitting with objects, beatings with objects. We were not allowed to talk about adoption. We were not allowed to question our adoptions. We were always, if questions got asked, we were usually slapped for asking those questions.
0: Uh, So they have four adopted kids, but you're not allowed to talk about it. Nope. Yeah. Did you talk about it with your siblings kind of on the slide? I remember a few times
1: trying to talk with my siblings. Again, I'm the oldest and the others were younger than me. Oh. And then by the time I left home, I really did not get to see their growing up years. And we, since then, have had a fractured relationship. Oh, sorry. And I don't know how open they would be in talking about that.
0: Mm. I know
1: some of them, and I think some of them would be open to that and others it might be too painful. Yeah
0: just so closed off. Yeah. Yeah. Oh gosh. So
1: what I remember growing up in grade school was that we had to wear the same clothes like two or three days in a row. We had to have the same meal for breakfast, same meal for lunch, and then like meat, potatoes and a vegetable for dinner. We were not allowed to have sweets. We were not allowed to drink soda or anything with sugar in it. I grew up with no TV, no radio. We were not allowed to have friends over. We were not allowed to go to friends' houses. Oh. Oftentimes, we were sent outside to play, and the door would be locked where we yeah. could not come back in. Oh, wow. Um, we were not allowed to have seconds at mealtime. And our bedtime was, like, really early, even for middle school and high school age.
0: Oh, really controlling. Wow. Very
1: controlling, very authoritarian.
0: Now, the lack of the TV and lack of the friends, is that because they were conservative, you know, religiously conservative or just like hippies or what was their impetus there?
1: You know, I don't really know. My thinking process is because they were just controlling.
0: They wanted to control what comes in and out. Okay. Yep. Yep. Uh, And
1: part of that, looking back at it, part of it, I can say thank you to in that maybe that was healthy. It uh, gave us the imagination to be creative. Yeah. But on the other part of it, I feel so left out and behind in social skills I because I was not able to interact with friends growing up. Yeah. The only interaction was at school or church.
0: Right. Okay. And you you probably can't talk about like if someone brings up, hey, did you see that movie or that Seinfeld episode or blah blah? You're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I have
1: no idea just
0: leaves you out oh gosh and then you talked about a lot of control around food and i know that a lot of adopted people and foster people have a lot of issues around food people's food has been scarce or controlled like yours was or has that had lasting effects that like super control over your food and i wonder what your food was like in korea i wonder what that must have been like in the orphanage
1: Well, and that's an interesting question because I've been connecting with some adoptees that were in the same orphanage as me and learning about some of their stories Mm. and hearing their stories that at that time in Korea, in the early 70s, it was in poverty. And so food was scarce. And so when I came over, my picture that I have from my file even though it looks like I should be two years old, it looks like I'm a lot younger and oh, you that I was like it. malnourished mm. and that I had a lot of tummy issues due to milk. Um, so I'm very lactose intolerant, okay. uh, which is not unusual for Asians. Right. And I remember in school, stealing some food from other kids mm-hmm. and then got in major trouble when I got mm-hmm. home and remember sneaking food at home. And then my mom found out and I would get in major trouble for that.
0: Yeah, that must have just compounded your issues around food because you probably brought some with you from Korea from having such scarcity and then to have the food that you have controlled so much that must just felt like a slap. Yes. In the face every single day. Ugh, that's terrible.
1: And then to the point where I don't know if this was really true or not. But growing up, I remember having a lot of allergies. And so my mom would put me on special diet mm-hmm. foods, like rice bread, goat milk, couldn't have chicken or turkey or eggs, wheat, chocolate. Oh, that takes out a lot of food. It does. And I just remember then after leaving home and trying all these foods, really didn't have that much problem. So I didn't know how much of it was allergies or intolerances, or how much of it was control.
0: Wow, that that's almost like torture. I mean, to take that much food away just for control purposes. Oh, that's terrible. Did they control things like dating or socializing kind of things when you're a teen? What was that like? So
1: I was not allowed to have a bank account. I was not allowed to drive a driver's license. I didn't get my driver's license until I was 18 out of the home.
0: That's unusual for a farm kid. Usually they give you one at like 12 so you can help drive the equipment. No? Nope. No. Did they make you work on the farm? Yeah, we had chores. Okay, We rented the farm so we didn't
1: have the actual like farming, but we had lots of animals that we took care of. Oh, okay, and the other thing is is that my parents divorced when I was about ten or eleven years old, mm-hmm. and we were still living on the farm then. I also remember being told that my mom told me once that she was being controlled by my dad, so mm-hmm. I don't know if part of that was then. She was angry and just lashing out and didn't know how to vent. And, and mm. her rage just took us, uh, took it out on us kids.
0: Yeah. I don't know. Did things get better or worse after they divorced? It got worse. Worse?
1: Oh, no. My mom was the, I would say, the abuser, the main abuser. Mm. When my parents divorced, I remember being told That I could not go see my dad for visitation because I was touched inappropriately by my dad. When I asked my sister about that, she says, yes, that's what our mom said. I don't remember Mm. it, to be honest. So I don't know if I repressed it. But I do remember not being able to see my dad for like Uh. three or four years. Oh, my gosh. Where my sisters and brother got to go see him every other week.
0: So she just kept you home. Wow. And I don't remember what I did. Well, okay. So pretend that your dad did something terrible to you. Why would you keep sending the other kids if he's capable of doing that to you? That's very strange and disturbing. Oh, golly. Man. So then when
1: I turned about 17, I think I was, I was in high school at that time and still being controlled pretty strongly. I just knew that I could not keep going with this life to the point where I wrote in a journal for an assignment in my psychology class that I wanted to kill myself. Okay. And so my teacher took it to the guidance counselor and to try to get me some help and bring my mom in. And my mom basically sat in the guidance counselor's office and said she didn't care if I killed myself because mm. she didn't have time for me.
0: Oh my Lord. Oh. oh, that's so painful. Oh no. So
1: I do remember going to therapy. She was told that she needed to seek therapy out. Okay. I do remember going. She took me a few times, but it didn't seem to help, I don't think. I don't remember much about it, mm-hmm. other than the abuse was still happening while I was in high school. And one day I just had enough. And I remember telling my siblings, my mom went to work. I remember telling my siblings, I can't take it anymore. If I stay here, I'm not going to make it. Mm. And so I left a note. I called my teacher to come get me and take me to my dad's house, whom, by the way, I hadn't seen for four years, three or four years. Mm. So my teacher came. I packed a few things in a bag. And my teacher came and took me to my dad's house, dropped me off there.
0: Okay, teachers would not do
1: that nowadays. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. This was the mid 80s. Okay, I remember my dad calling my grandpa, who was my mom's dad, who worked at the sheriff's office in our small town and saying, don't worry, Darcy's fine. She's up here. She just needs a break for a little while. Okay. And I left my note on the table to my mom saying, I just need a break okay. and said where I was. She got home, was angry, according to what I was told, called my grandpa, and then also called the police and reported that I was a missing child. Oh. My grandpa called the, uh, since he worked in the sheriff's department, had said to take that off. That's not true. We know okay. where she's at. Okay. Okay. So I stayed at my dad's for about a month. And mind you, my dad was remarried at the time. I do not call her my stepmom because she was not kind to all of us kids. She basically told my dad that she had raised her kids. She was done raising kids. Oh, no. I'm not taking care of your kids, Robert.
0: So she probably was not too happy that you landed on her doorstep at that point in time. Okay. Oh, boy.
1: So I ended up in the hospital because of all the stress. I bet. I also was diagnosed with endometriosis during the time in my high school years, which landed me into the hospital. I had cysts. I remember my dad coming up to the hospital toward the end of my stay and said, I'm sorry, you can't come back here. You will need to find somewhere else to live.
0: You're in the hospital with a medical condition in Okay. So how are you supposed to find a place to live at? 17 years old.
1: What'd you do? I remembered a family friend that my dad and my mom, more more so my mom, knew. She was a pastor in a small town close to us. Okay. For some reason, her and her husband I knew and met, I called them. Okay. And they came to the hospital and were able to sit and listen to my story, they did not know that all of this was going on. Oh, wow. So it was a little bit of a surprise to them. Wow! So they agreed to take me and that I could stay with them and tell trying to figure out what the next steps were.
0: Okay, well, that was nice of them. Were they nice people, though? (laughs) They were. Oh,
1: good. They were, and I'm still in contact with them. Okay, very good. I actually, even though they were family friends, I didn't know them that well at the time. I called them my foster parents. Oh, nice, nice, nice. But they really stepped up to the plate, went to the court and asked for guardianship Mm -hmm. and was granted guardianship. And from there, I had heard then later that my younger sister ended up in foster home for a while. Okay, because she too could not stand it and was Ran away. yeah not able to uh, hold it together. She ended up, I think, if the story is right, trying to defend herself when my mom was trying to beat her, oh. and ended up hitting my mom. And so my mom yeah. called the cops I, and got her pulled out of the home. Oh gosh, maybe was that the best thing that happened to her? Or yes and no. And then my other sister ended up staying at home. And my brother ended up leaving the home and staying with friends until he graduated and okay. left. Okay. And to this day, my brother will not talk to my mom. Okay. My two sisters will talk to my mom, but are not, I don't think that close. And I am not close at all.
0: Do you talk to her at all? Or? Maybe
1: once or twice a year. Okay. And it's all chit chat. It's not a mother-daughter relationship that I wish I had.
0: Yeah, just obligatory keeping in touch with you because you're alive in the same planet as me. Yeah. Yeah. Question before you go on to after high school, were you one of those kind of kids that was easily molded into what they wanted you to be, or were you very rebellious the whole time?
1: I was very much a perfectionist and did everything that my parents told me.
0: So that works in your favor, at least it helped you survive because they probably would have really beat you if you had been rebellious. But after a certain point, you just couldn't even handle that anymore. Correct. Yeah. Got it. I'm kind of the same way. I can totally understand that. Just like, okay, if I just am a good girl, nothing will happen. You know, you just try to weave this fine line to keep out of trouble. But Yeah, you're suppressing all of your own energy at the same time.
1: Well, and what was interesting, Beth, was is that our family grew up in the church.
0: You went to church a lot, right? We
1: did. What kind of church? So I was actually baptized Methodist. I was told that my mom was unchurched and when she did go, it was Methodist. I was told my dad grew up in the Missouri Synod Church, Lutheran. And then when they married and then they had kids wanted us to get baptized, they joined and we moved to the country around a small town in Nebraska, went to a country church, okay, a Lutheran church.
0: One of those white churches with the steeples and the cemetery behind it. Yes. yeah, Seen many, many of those. Yes. Okay. So it becomes like a little family, right? Everyone knows each other. Everyone knows everyone's business. Did the church know what you kids were going through? Not until later. Okay.
1: I remember one Christmas after the divorce that we had a knock on the door and somehow there were presents under the tree. I think to this day, it was our church that brought the presents. Mm. Then when my brother had a breakdown, a mental breakdown, when he was probably upper elementary, my mom called the pastor. And so the pastor came over. Okay, And she, to this day, says that was the wrong thing to do because then oh. that opened up the door, Pandora's box of what was happening in our home.
0: Oh, okay. So then the pastor knew and then pretty quickly everybody knew. Ah.
1: My mom did get turned into CPS because mm. somebody, whether it's school or church, turned her in. And I remember being sat down one day after school and all four of us kids sat there and we got told, you say this. You behave, you do this. And when the stranger came into our home, we did what we were told, and yeah. then nothing happened because there was uh, no, you know, bruises or anything to really show. Yeah, and yeah. the house was spick and span clean, and we looked clean. Yeah. So.
0: Oh, darn. Now, was religion a big piece of why they adopted you? Were they super religious and wanted to kind of rescue you from your pagan, <laughs> I don't
1: know, <laughs> background? You know, to this day, I don't know. I would say, yes, in those days, the parents, that's all they really knew was to let's save the children, yeah, the children who are suffering.
0: But it was more to make themselves look good. I think mm-hmm. a lot of times like, oh, yes. look at how great we are. Yes. It wasn't really about the children because if it was right. really about the children, they would just send money to the orphanage and help the orphanage take care of you better right, yeah. or, or yeah. something or take Not, better care of us. Oh, yeah. Or that once they get you. Yeah. They, yeah. If It was really about saving the children. But was it about saving your souls, though? I don't know. I don't know. I don't think so. Okay. Oh, interesting. And you are employed in a church.
1: I am church synod. Yeah, I am. And what's interesting is is that people ask, "How in the world do you now serve in the Christian faith when all of this was happening?" And did you lose faith? Mm -hmm. And here's the interesting thing is even though we grew up in the church, went to church every Sunday, had to sit in the front row and behave and no talking and no looking behind and sing the song, stand up, sit down, Mm -hmm. go to Sunday school, go to youth group, go to confirmation. I was confirmed there, did all that, said our prayers at bedtime, mealtime, acted like Christians on the outside for the public to see, but on the inside, I questioned as if this was not Christian at all. The actions from my parents were not Christian.
0: Yeah, it must have been very confusing for a kid.
1: Very confusing.
0: But on the other hand,
1: something internally connected a higher power of God, faith, something that kept me going and really seeking to stay connected to the higher power, because that's what really held me together and got me through all of this. Well, Mm -hmm. I probably wouldn't be here today.
0: Yeah. Oh, it sounds like you had something intervene because you were at the end of your rope there and could have been pretty easily unalive right now, right?
1: Yeah. And I remember questioning after my pastor in college, I had like three pages of questions, especially all about suicide and death Mm -hmm. and heaven and all kinds of faith questions. Mm -hmm. And I remember him sitting down and answering to the best of what he knew and just kept saying, you know, God is this mysterious being that just cares for us and loves us no matter what. And that some answers are gray. Um, There is no black and white answers sometimes, but that we just need to have faith and trust in God to help us, to care for us, to love us. And that's what I just kept doing. And so Mm -hmm. faith has carried me through. Here's the other piece, though, is, is that I had good adult faith mentors after I left the home. So okay. my family friends that I stayed with, she was a Lutheran pastor.
0: Okay, okay.
1: And he played the organ for our congregation and then also was a music director. Okay. And so I saw a different side of what Christianity yeah. could be about. Nice. And I also went to a Lutheran college.
0: So you you did go to a Lutheran school to get, what was your destination there to go to school?
1: I actually started off nursing and then found that I could not poke needles into people for shots. There you go. Done with that. Changed my major to psychology, sociology, and criminal justice. Oh. And so did a lot of with human services.
0: Oh, okay. And then, but now did you work in that area or are you using those skills at the church where you work now? I'm using some of the skills at the church, but then after
1: my, um, and I also I think minored, was close to a minor in youth ministry. Oh, okay. So I was involved in campus ministry in my college years as well. So that oh, okay. also helped. I worked at a Bible camp, uh-huh. and that also helped strengthen my faith. Uh-huh. And so that's, I think, where I really felt God calling me into ministry of some sort. Nice. After college, I worked at Boys Town, and that was a uh, godsend in that I learned a lot about um, healthy families and healthy systems.
0: Uh, tell us about Boys Town. I've, I've been past there, I think. I know what it is basically, but I don't know very much about it.
1: So Boys Town, as you may have heard, is the history of Father Flanagan started the Boys' Home way back in the early 1900s to orphans off the street and to give them a taste of what family life was like. Okay. And so Boys Town is a treatment facility, but set up in a family style. So there is actually homes and now it's it's a city almost or a town, the village mm. of Boys Town in Nebraska that have boys and girls there. And at the time I worked in a girl's home, a big home. And each home has a set of family teachers, a married couple who often have their own kids. They live on site in the house and have eight youth And they take care of the youth in that they teach them social skills. They teach them money management. They also have to go to church, but they also get therapy. And they teach them just a healthy way of what it means to be a family in the family system. That
0: must have been really enlightening to you because you didn't have that experience of a healthy family. Absolutely. So you got that in a roundabout way. It did. At Boys Town. That's pretty cool.
1: I like the Boys Town model. They did a lot with the point system about practicing and role modeling. So positive behavior. So in order for positive behavior to happen, you have to show them and then they have to practice it, right? Uh-huh. And that's what Boys Town model is all about.
0: Nice. Very good. And, and what was your role there? I was assistant
1: family teacher. Okay. So every house has an assistant family teacher so that the family teachers get some time off. I see. To relieve some of the respite for the family teachers. And then the assistant family teachers come in and do the same thing that the family teachers do.
0: Nice. That must have been a really great experience.
1: It was rewarding, and I think very highly of Boystown.
0: Nice. Tell me about your relationship with your adoption agency. Uh, from my perspective, it would seem like you might be a little angry at them for placing you with this dysfunctional family. Well, How did you work that out in your head? So
1: that's a good question. Actually, um, it was a college assignment. I did not know where I was adopted or what agency. And so in my college assignment, I was supposed to write an autobiography. And one of the questions was, If you were adopted, find out what agency you were adopted from and find out the adoption story a little bit. And so I remember this was after I had left home and didn't have any contact with my adoptive mom or dad, really, for that matter. I called both of them asking if they would share anything about my adoption story, how they got me, you know, a little bit. My mom started talking a little bit and then she hung up on me.
0: Oh, she's like, nope, can't go there.
1: Okay. My dad told me a little bit. And then I remember asking where was I adopted? What agency? My dad didn't remember. My mom wouldn't answer. Mm. So, I remember getting my two sisters from Lutheran Family Services in Nebraska, so I called them thinking I was adopted from there.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. And
1: they told me, "No, you and your brother were not adopted from us. You were adopted from Dillon International in Tulsa, oh. Oklahoma."
0: They just happened to know that because it's a small town?
1: (laughs) They had it in their files because of the homesteadies that they had to do. Oh, the
0: homesteads. Oh, yeah, sure. I wonder if that was legal for them to tell you that.
1: Hmm. I don't know. That's a good question.
0: But that was nice of them to tell you because you were Mm -hmm. able to find more information. Good, good. So I I remember getting online, I
1: think, and searching it, found Dillon International, called them up, and they were so gracious to invite me to Tulsa, they even paid for my flight. To Tulsa. Really? And I stayed with the co-founders and shared my story with them. I was able to see my adoption file and they was just really helpful. But because of therapy and because of all the education that I had in college around psychology and family systems, I knew enough not to blame the agency for placing me in a dysfunctional family. Mm-hmm. It really wasn't totally their fault. And they have owned up to it. They said that they were early on and just starting. They should have, you know, questioned their homesteady, whoever did the homesteady to look at that more in depth. Yeah. But of course they just started. So I really don't blame them yeah. at all.
0: Well, and it sounds like your mother was able to make things look really, really great on the outside, you know, to your church and to the CBS people. So I'm sure the homesteady, what, they come in for like an hour. You can fake a lot of stuff for an hour. Yep. So yeah, that makes sense. And
1: dysfunctional families usually know how to manipulate the system.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. But I bet that made them a little sad. The adoption agency. It did. Yeah. And yeah.
1: And to this day, they keep apologizing. Aww. And but they have been so kind and so nice and generous, checking in with me every so often and inviting me to things. That's how I got to go to Korea a couple of different times. Oh, okay. With on their homeland tours.
0: So they take adopted people from Korea or wherever um, mm-hmm. and take you together as a group. Mm-hmm. Were you able to see the orphanage? Were you? My orphanage
1: was no longer standing, but I got to go to the site where it used to be at. Okay. So went to the city and to the site and got to do that. But I got to more experience the culture and I see bet. the land. And that's what was healing for me. Yeah. Knowing and seeing that. And understanding, even though I long to find my biological mom, especially, but any biological relative would be really cool, but have had no luck both times. I have done a DNA search and testing and have not found anything
0: yet to this day. Because somebody in their family will have to do the same set of DNA brand or whatever to get into the database. Oh gosh. Oh, that just must leave a hole in your heart, just not knowing. Yes. Uh, I'm glad you were able to go though. Was it healing and helpful to go to Korea?
1: Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. It was very emotional. And I think the big thing that really helped me was hearing from the birth moms, young, single parents, birth moms who were ready to give birth or have just given mm-hmm. birth and gave their kids up for adoption. And every single one of them said, that they never forget about the child Mm. that gave birth. So I knew in my heart that my biological mom absolutely knows and remembers me.
0: Yes.
1: It might be painful. Sure. But knowing that she, I mean, I guess thinking about it, any mother who gives birth, you will never forget about that, would you?
0: Yeah. No, I've I've, I've never given birth, but I bet I wouldn't forget that. (laughs) That's a major event and such a bond, just a biological, primal bond right you you can't deny that for sure now what must it have been like to grow up as a, a little asian girl in the middle of nebraska in a farm town that i just i grew up in iowa i can imagine what that looked like were there any other asian kids in your school
1: no i grew up in a country school kindergarten through eighth grade and then went to high school in small towns and there were not any other asian but my brother uh, my cousin is adopted and was Asian, okay. but that's it. Mainly all white people. It wasn't until I went to college that I met other Asians, mainly Japanese students. Okay. Uh-huh. And the funny thing is often I would get stopped in the hallways and asked, how do you know English so well? Because uh, they,
0: they thought I was an international student. a foreign exchange student. Oh, shoot. That... Did you have microaggressions like every day of your whole life? Yeah,
1: Almost probably. Yeah. Yeah. I can, thinking back now, I could probably, yeah, name quite a few.
0: It boggles my mind that even still today, people are bullying people for being Asian, but it happens all the time. I just had no idea that it would be possible, but it happened to my son every single day of school, every single day. He said something happened. They call him a name. They say, can you do my math homework? You're Asian. You must be smart. And that sounds like a compliment, but it is not a compliment. That is putting you into a big box. One of the last straws right before he tried to kill himself was, it was the day after Chinese New Year. My son is Japanese. They don't celebrate Chinese New Year. (laughs) Right. And even still, we're not really upholding Japanese traditions anyway. But she said, what did you do, Joy, for Chinese New Year or for the holiday? She didn't even name the holiday just assumed he knew. And he's like, what holiday? what holiday? So he felt embarrassed and totally, Oh, just put in a box. And he was humiliated. And that was a teacher that did that to him in high school. Oh, wow. it's terrible. Wow,
1: that's sad. Yeah.
0: It's really, and people don't even realize probably because I think a lot of people look up to Asians or, you know, what do you call it? A favored class or something there's some yes. name for that yeah there's
1: there's a t- um a term i learned during the pandemic on the asian webinars i can't think of it now but yes i know what you're getting at yeah
0: okay so asians don't model terrific. asians yeah Model. yes which isn't is a very big burden to bear mm-hmm. so ugh, it's terrible and that just must eat away at you every single day. So what has
1: been really hard, especially during the pandemic, and I've been trying to figure this out and and what has helped is me connecting with other adoptees, especially Mm, Asian adoptees. But growing up and even to this day, it's been hard for me to know that on the outside, I look Asian. But on the inside, really, I was assimilated in the white culture. Yeah. And so a lot of my favorite foods are from the white culture. There are some Asian foods I don't like because I didn't acquire the taste. Mm -hmm. There are some other things that I just don't associate with because I never had to experience it as an Asian, you know, as in the Asian culture, which I would have liked to have. But on the other hand, there are some things I know that comes from my Asian, I I have, I say, Asian tendencies. Somebody goes, Mm -hmm. well, what do you mean by that? I said, for example, I'm pretty reserved. I'm quiet. I'm shy. Now, that is Asian, you know. They say Asians are quiet and reserved, you know, type thing. On mm-hmm. uh, another thing, I don't consider myself smart, but yet they say Asians are smart. You know, things like that, like you yep. were saying. Yep. But, but what's been really tough is, it's like, who do I really assimilate with? Or who should I, what side? Should I go on because I'm Asian? Or should I go because I'm Caucasian? Mm-hmm. And that's what I grew up in. Yeah. So I, I have trouble sometimes.
0: And you probably don't feel quite Asian or quite white. Exactly. It's like you're exactly. halfway in between both. It must be mm-hmm. just destabilizing. Mm -hmm. And I know my son struggles with that too. And ah, I don't know what to do about it at this point. Well, you know what he's done is he's got a job now and guess who his bosses are. It's a Japanese company. He's finally in his Japanese culture, like culturally, because his relatives are not very culturally Japanese. Mm. So these are Japanese people that came over here to build this little store. And he loves it. And I am so pleased. And they love him, too. And he's finding his people, you know, that must feel really good. That's what
1: happened to me during the pandemic. I found my people,
0: people. my connection
1: that look like me and can understand the things that I'm going through. So we adoptees, Queen Adoptees have several Zoom things I've been on. We, we connect and, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah. I understand that we understand each other because yes. we look alike. And then we also have been assimilated into the white culture. And yes. so we have experienced shared experiences. So I totally get it. Yes. So I'm, I'm so happy that he has found his niche and hopefully that has, you know, that works for him.
0: Yeah. I hope it helps. It's only been a couple of weeks, so Mm-kay. I'll let you know. <laughs> okay There's a podcast I love. It's not adoption related, but it's called Asian, not Asian. It's filthy. It's, they drop the F bomb every other word. So be careful, but I think they're hilarious. They're two comedians that are Asian American. So they're not Uh quite Asian and they're not quite American. They kind of have Uh that, that same thing. And it's very, it's been very interesting for me to hear and they're young guys. So they're a little older than my son, but kind of helps me to, Oh God, that's, that's really tough.
1: It's really Mm -hmm. tough to
0: be in this middle place and uh, just so many So many layers there. That must be really, really tough. So what do you wish, well, besides abusing you, (laughs) what do you wish your adoptive parents would have done differently? And maybe just regarding your interculturalness.
1: I wish that they would have had us participate or engage us in our heritage culture. I think just to give us the opportunity to say that we could experience it if we want, maybe we could have had a choice of yes or no, we wanted to participate, but at least give us that option. We didn't have that option. And I don't know if it's because a small town and even a bigger town in Nebraska didn't have those. I don't know. No. But I do know that Dillon had some events that they mm. could have, because I now help with Dylan's events. And they have people coming from all over wherever the families are at. They come and fly in.
0: Yeah. Summer camps and things, right? Yeah. 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 They
1: have heritage camps and stuff. They fly in and, and participate in those. Nice. But my parents didn't have anything to do with that. So you
0: help out those as a counselor type person? I did. Yep. I did
1: a couple of times. Yeah.
0: Was it healing for you as well? I know yes. you're trying to babysit the kids or whatever, but yeah, I bet yeah. it was helpful for you.
1: Yeah. Wow. It was just so cute. So cute to see the little kids. Yeah. And then just to learn more about my culture too, Yeah. you know, and just, I felt so at ease with it. And again, going to Korea twice felt so at ease felt like that, that's where I belong. Uh, So that sense of belonging, that's the other piece that I think I was, you know, I, the identity piece of as well, but the Mm -hmm. sense of belonging, knowing who I am, you know, Mm -hmm. Yes, I am Darcy. Yes, I am a Korean American. But am I really Korean? Am I really American? You know, yes. and then what family do I really belong to? Because I have a very dysfunctional family. Now I tell people, you know what? I'm so glad I'm not blood related because I don't have to, you know, associate and, and say that I can make family wherever I go.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. We just make our own families. Yeah. Can you address the idea of mirroring? You know what I'm talking about? Like seeing people that look like you.
1: genetically
0: and the lack of mirroring how what does that feel like to not have a mirror so it feels lonely
1: i bet isolation uh, a lot it's hard to explain it really is hard to explain i think it's because when i see other asians i automatically feel connected to them whether or not they're adopted or Mm. but i just automatically feel connected but when I see other people, yeah, other, I may feel connected in the ways, but in totally different yeah. ways.
0: So any sort of Asian, even not South Korean Asians, but yeah, any Asian, any you're, like, you're my person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, besides the adopted group, do you hang out with Asian people? Do you do cultural things now where you live?
1: I try to. So when I was living in Arizona, I just moved from Arizona to Texas about four years ago. I had some Asian friends I hung out with and it was so fun to, you know, hang out with them and do things. But I try to and then I try to connect with like adoptee groups um, in person if I can um, Mm -hmm. and hang out with them. Yeah. And it's funny because not that I act differently when I'm around other Asians than when I'm with a white group, but I think I do if that makes yeah, sense.
0: Yeah, I was talking to Joy about his new job and all of the employees are either Asian or Hispanic. So no white people in the whole store that work there. And I was like, Joy, that must feel like, because I'm gay and it, when my wife and I are at a pride event or something where they're all gay people, we're like, whew, you just are able to let down your guard just a little bit. And he said, yeah, mom, that's exactly what it feels like. I'm I, with my, my crew that understands. So
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Really
0: good. Yeah. So we did not do a great job with that with Joey. I didn't even know that his adoption could have been traumatic for him until after he sort of fell apart at 15. But since then I'm in a taiko group. So I do the Japanese drumming, which is fun. I had always hoped that he would do it with me, but it's no longer cool when your mother does it. So <laughs> I sort of ruined that for him, but I love it. So now I'm sort of trying to make up for it a little bit, but we kind of dropped the ball on that whole cross-cultural thing. So I want to make sure other adoptive parents and foster parents don't do what I did. I'm glad
1: that you learned from that and are really trying to expand your knowledge and wisdom in that and experiencing the cultural things. But here's the thing is, is that I think adoption agencies, and this is why I'm trying to be more active in my agency, role is to help them understand that it is important for adoptive parents and foster parents mm. to get some knowledge and wisdom ahead of time or during even to educate them in these things, because how are you supposed to know if nobody tells you? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And our little agency, it was tiny in Japan. I, I don't think it even exists anymore. But yeah, they, they just said, here you go have fun and like there was no follow-up no nothing no this might be traumatic for your son nothing at all so in Joey's case it was a OBGYN and his wife so not even really they called themselves an agency but it's really just like babies that were left at the maternity ward Mm. (laughs) they took care of until they found someone for them it was not really a they didn't think it through all the way I don't think so Yeah. It was pretty rough but I I really admire you for going back to your adoption agency and helping inform prospective parents mm-hmm. and adoptive parents after they've adopted and help with the camps and the I think that's really really smart and really I'm sure that's very useful for them. Do they do they respond well to you and Oh yeah. Oh yes, believe they you do and they yeah. say okay, thank you for telling me. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, I've curated a lot of resources and shared them out with them as well as other adoptees too because they are all so curious and don't know where to turn to. And some of them don't have agencies that are formalized in that to be able to help them. So.
0: Yeah. Like mine. Yeah. Well, you're doing really, really great things for adoptees and for adoptive families. It's really important. I wish somebody had told me some of this stuff when Joey was little, I would have gotten him into therapy right away. I would have been so much more aware and I don't know if we could have avoided completely, what happened. Cause I think a lot of it might've just happened in utero, you know, mm-hmm. before I was even involved, but, but I would have been able to better navigate, yeah. help him navigate. So that's why we're doing this podcast to help spread the word and to just make it more clear what, what we need to be doing as parents for all of our kids, but especially our adoptive kids. I'm particularly drawn to, to this area because I feel like I, I failed my son in a lot of ways. So just trying to help educate other people. <laughs>
1: doing a good job. You're doing a great job in that. Oh, thank you. Well, and then I think, thank you for inviting me to this podcast because I want everyone to know, adoptees as well as adoptive parents, foster parents, anybody to know that just because I was raised in a dysfunctional home, or if any of you were raised in a dysfunctional home, there is hope, there is help, and that you can bounce back from it with the help and to seek help and to be able to work on the things to make you stronger and better and that you can become resilient.
0: Yeah, your story is really amazing. Well, and unless you skipped a large chunk of it, it doesn't sound like you totally went off the road to addiction or self-harm or self-destructive behavior.
1: I did, like I said, attempt. I don't know if I said that in there, but I did attempt suicide. Oh, you did Um, attempt. Yeah, but really addiction, I had no addiction per se. I was just in therapy a lot. After, you know, getting out of that. So, I mean, again, thanks to good mentors and yeah. all good people in my life to help guide that way yeah. into that. Otherwise, I could have been down the road of addictions. And actually, um, my siblings, um, I think, had a harder time. And some mm-hmm. of them ended up with some addictions and mm-hmm. and are struggling now. And so mm-hmm. I think that's part of the reason why I have removed myself and learned from family systems to remove yourself from toxic people. Yeah,
0: yep. Yeah. To stay you, healthy. You can't change them. So and you have to protect yourself. Well, it sounds like you hit the jackpot with that that minister and her husband that you found. That sounds like a turning point that if you would have chosen a different phone number that night, it might have gone a different way, you know. Exactly. Sound like they really nurtured you and helped guide you in that critical junction. So yes. wow. Well, you're an inspiration at Darcy. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Is there you're anything welcome. else you want to tell us?
1: Before we wrap up? No, other than thank you so much for letting me share my story, because I think it is important for people to know that there are adoptees that are struggling out there and still searching and still Mm -hmm. trying to figure out who they are. And we're not raised in good homes, but there are a lot of adoptees who were not raised in good homes who have bounced back and are resilient.
0: Yes, 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 yes. Well, very good. We learned a lot from you today. Thank you so much, Darcy. Would you be open to people getting hold of you if they wanted to follow up with Absolutely. you? Absolutely. How would Absolutely. they get a hold of you?
1: So, the best way would be my email. I am on social media and I can give in the show notes my social media handles, but okay. my email is my first name, dot my last name, middlestead at gmail.com, which okay. you could probably add those to the show notes too.
0: I will be very careful to spell it correctly. And I'll put all that in the show notes so you can follow up with Darcy. That'd be great. And go ahead and find us on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube. You can find Safe Home Podcast there. Our website is safehomefamilies.com. And I just started a group for adoptive parents. And so if you're an adoptive parent or a foster parent or a guardian, go look that up on our website, safehomefamilies.com. And you'll see a button for adoptive parents. And we are also on Patreon. And Darcy, by the way, is a Patreon supporter. Thank you so much, Darcy, for joining our Patreon family. And Patreon is the way that we are able to keep this podcast commercial free. And it helps support all the time that I put into this work that I am so passionate about. So thank you very much. If anyone else would like to join Patreon, go to patreon.com slash safe home. So please share this episode with any adoptive families you know or Asian adoptees that you know or just people that would love to hear a very inspirational story. We would really appreciate that. And Darcy and I want you all to stay Stay safe. safe.